You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1868th edition of St Edmundsby News Talk for the 3rd of March 2022. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin. The producer is Roger Morris and your readers are Nick and Jill Gain. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. Suffolk Axe's £10 million Russia gas contract. Fighter jets on standby for Ukraine. Council tax set to rise after budget is set. Suffolk's last two middle schools axed. Councils and other public sector bodies across Suffolk are planning for a quick exit from a £10 million contract to buy gas from Russian fuel supplier Gazprom. The Russian government-controlled company is on the UK government's list of organisations to face sanctions following last week's invasion of Ukraine. Its British arm, Gazprom Marketing and Trading Retail London, signed a £10 million contract to supply gas to Suffolk County Council-owned Vertras for three years from October 2020 to 2023. Vertras, in turn, supplies the gas to public sector premises around the county, including buildings providing services for Ipswich Borough Council and East Suffolk Council. It also supplies gas to many schools and academies in the county. It has now given notice that it will definitely end the contract when a break clause can be activated in October of this year, but the likelihood is it will end much sooner than that. Lawyers are already looking at how the contract could be broken as soon as possible and the government is planning to bring in emergency legislation which would allow bodies to walk away from contracts with businesses facing sanctions. Suffolk County Council leader Matthew Hicks said, When Vladimir Putin made the immoral and utterly reprehensible decision to invade Ukraine, I instructed officers last week to review our contract with Russian-owned energy company Gazprom. I can confirm that we have decided to invoke our options to break away from the contract, ending our connection with Gazprom. Working with our partners, we are actively pursuing this outcome. The government is imposing economic sanctions on Russia, and this is a part we can play in helping to bring to an end this act of aggression on a free and peaceful nation and its innocent people. Planes from RAF Mildenhall are flying near Ukrainian airspace after Russia launched a full-scale invasion on the country. The planes have been spotted flying around Ukraine on the flight tracking website Flight Radar 24. A spokesman for USAF said US forces were ready to support NATO missions and contingency operations regarding Ukraine. F-35 Lightning fighter jets were deployed to the Baltic Sea near Ukraine while B-52 Stratofortress bombers flew missions with Swedish and Polish forces in the region. Meanwhile, Stratotanker refuelling aircraft from RAF Mildenhall flew over Eastern Europe. The spokesman said, US Air Force installations through Europe are postured to support a variety of NATO missions and contingency operations regarding Ukraine. RAF Mildenhall and all of our British bases execute a variety of missions which support the defence of Europe. RAF Mildenhall's refuelling platforms are providing critical refuelling support to all aerial assets moving throughout the theatre in support of contingency and routine operations. General Jeff Harigian said, We are facing a dynamic environment and the deployment of F-35s to NATO's eastern flank enhances our defensive posture and amplifies the Alliance's interoperability. Council tax will rise by £11.52 a year from April after West Suffolk Council set its budget this week. 
the rise will apply to homes in B and D. Those who live in the former St Edmundsbury district, however, will only pay £1.71 a year. Councillors passed the budget by 37 votes, 4 and 10 against, with two absent tensions. The budget will see £9 million investment to meet West Suffolk Council's zero-carbon ambitions by 2030. This includes income generation, greener vehicles and buildings, as well as extending its solar rent and roof scheme for businesses. Hub and leisure projects investment includes leisure facilities and £91 million for the Western Way development, an NHS-backed scheme designed to be cost-neutral. Some £1.3 million investment will be made into parks and heritage assets such as Moises Hall and West Stowe, including maintaining areas such as Brandon County Park. Councillor John Griffiths, leader of West Suffolk Council, said, This budget underpins our ambitions at West Suffolk Council to help ensure and protect the future health and well-being of our communities, businesses and indeed our environment. Some councillors, however, were concerned about the level of borrowing for some of the projects. Cliff Waterman, councillor for Eastgate Ward, said, There's a massive elephant in the room, the Western Way hub. The budget has been finely honed to make it look affordable. But the fact is, as a council, we'll be taking on anything between £91 to £132 million of debt to pay for it. The last two remaining middle schools in Suffolk are set to close next year, it has been announced. Horringer Court and Westley Middle Schools, both in Bury St Edmunds, will shut at the end of the next academic year. Unity Schools Partnership published proposals in January for the reorganisation of the two schools, along with Tollgate Primary and County Upper Schools. Following a consultation, it now intends to proceed if it gets the government go-ahead. Christine Quinn, chair of the Trust Board, said, We were very grateful for all who engaged in the consultation and in particular we recognised the disappointment expressed by many who explained their strong views about the value of a middle school education. She added, The Trust Board believes that the overall rationale for the proposals is strong and that they are in the best interests of the education of children in Bury St Edmunds and surrounding areas, both now and in the future. The responses during the consultation have improved the proposals and we will carry out further work on developing specialist facilities for the proposed expanded Tollgate Primary School, make use of the Wesley site for years 7 and 8 for the foreseeable future and will ensure that there is no increase in costs to families next school year to both Horringer Court and Wesley schools as a result of these proposed changes. A man has been jailed after two pensioners were threatened at knife points in their Bury St Edmunds home, with one victim told her fingers would be cut off unless she handed over her rings. Jordan Carr, 32, appeared before Ipswich Crown Court on Thursday when he was sentenced to 11 years in prison with an extended licence period of four years. Carr initially denied a charge of aggravated burglary, but changed his plea to guilty on the fifth day of a trial in December last year. The victim's ordeal began shortly before 11pm on August 11, 2018, when the man and woman, both in their 70s, were watching TV in separate rooms of their Norman Road bungalow. The man was sitting in the kitchen when two men came in through the back door wearing balaclavas. The victim stood up and one of the men held a knife to his chin and told him to sit down. At one point, the victim tried to get up and grab something to defend himself, but was pushed to the floor. The other intruder cut the phone line and confronted the second victim, who was in a bedroom. He spotted she was wearing a number of rings and ordered her to take them off, or he would cut her fingers off. Once she handed over the rings, he pushed her down onto the bed and left the room emptying the contents of her handbag as he went. The next morning, police attended an address in Lancaster Avenue where they arrested Carr with another man and a woman after finding some of the victim's possessions. A 46-year-old man was also charged and found not guilty after a trial in December. 
The court heard that Carr is currently serving a five-year prison term for robbery, which he was sentenced for in September 2020. The latest sentence will run consecutively to the previous one and he will serve a total of 16 years. Suffolk's local authorities and MPs are expected to start preparing for any arrival of refugees from the fighting in Ukraine over the next few days. Hundreds of thousands of people, mainly women and children, have been heading west in Ukraine towards its borders with Poland, Slovakia, Hungary and Romania, which are all in the European Union, and to the neutral state of Moldova. Now MPs from Suffolk have said this country should work with other European nations to offer them sanctuary here, while local authority leaders are expected to discuss what this county could offer over the next few days. There are thought to be about 400,000 people trying to leave Ukraine, mainly through the border with Poland, but some estimates have said the total number who might try to flee the country if Russia is successful in its invasion could be as high as 5 million. The Home Office has already said Ukrainians already in the UK on temporary work visas will have these extended so long as the crisis remains in their homeland, they will not be forced to leave. Ipswich MP Tom Hunt said, Understandably, many of my constituents will be desperately concerned about developments in the Ukraine and will be keen that we do what we can to support the Ukrainian people. Many have already been in contact with me to express their views. All you have to do is switch on your TV to find evidence that the individuals and families in question fleeing for their lives are the most genuine of refugees, and I think only a very small minority would be opposed to us providing a sanctuary to a good number of them. It's important we work closely with other European countries to facilitate this. All the people of the Ukraine wanted was to live their lives in peace. Central Suffolk and North Ipswich MP Dr Dan Poulter said this country had a long tradition of offering sanctuary. We offered homes to those fleeing from the Nazis and to people from Afghanistan and Syria in more recent times. It is certainly right to work with other European countries to offer help. Council leaders in Suffolk have not drawn up plans to offer homes for Ukrainian refugees, but Ipswich Council leader David Ellesmere said he was sure they would work together if the government did ask the region to offer homes. He said, We shall of course do all we can to help any refugees who come here, but it will be done at a county-wide level by all the districts and county together. A torch relay to celebrate all things Suffolk has been launched ahead of a much-anticipated festival. The torch relay will tour over 250 of the county's main towns and villages, including Bresnedmans and Stowmarket, in the lead-up to the Festival of Suffolk and the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. People are being invited to nominate local heroes and members of the community to be torchbearers alongside the Bury St Edmunds, Stowmarket and Framlingham rickshaw teams who will transport the torch and its bearers. Mark Brennan, relay organiser, said it's a combination of the BBC's rickshaw challenge and the Olympic torch relay. We've created the route which starts off in Brandon on May 13th and follows a specific route all the way around the county to end up at the Suffolk show on June the 1st. We're looking for people to nominate a local hero or someone in the community to carry the torch as they pass through that patch. For the most part, the torchbearers will be riding on the rickshaw. That means it's accessible to all. It doesn't matter if people have limited mobility or if they're old or young. We just invite people to ride the rickshaw. The torch relay will take place over 20 days and will pass through a host of Suffolk towns to reach its Ipswich destination, having travelled over 550 miles. David Fisher, a Berry rickshaw pilot, said, We were quite pleased and felt privileged to be asked. It's something I feel happy to take part in, and our strapline is More Smiles Per Miles. Everyone who has a ride on the rickshaw always seems to enjoy themselves. Tim Holder, Director of Communications for the Festival of Suffolk, said, We felt that Suffolk more than ever needed to come out from its bunkers and start to recover from the pandemic and celebrate the wonderful county that we live in. 
We want to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is an incredible achievement, but you also want to celebrate everything that is, that is great about the whole of Suffolk. The Festival of Suffolk will take place across the county with events set to include a book launch, a tree planting event, community games, Festival of the Sea and a business expo. A lasting legacy will also be created as a festival fund of £5 million will be used to help charities, organisations, community groups and social enterprises. Tim said, There will be various fundraising initiatives on throughout the festival. The aim of the festival is not just to come and go, but to look at some of the serious issues people of Suffolk are facing, such as isolation, mental health and well-being. A Suffolk well-being hub has celebrated its 25th anniversary by recreating a photo taken at its opening a quarter of a century ago. Red Gables in Ipswich Street, Stowmarket, opened on February 24, 1997 and provides activity and office space for local charities and organisations as well as enabling services that deliver better health and well-being for all ages. Some of the projects that are run by Red Gables include the Redwoods Lunch Club, which provides a two-course meal for older local residents to help tackle social isolation. Other initiatives cover a plethora of social and health issues, and the Hub also works with other local charities and organisations to help make a difference to the local community. A spokesperson for Red Gables said, Red Gables is a unique, special place and provides vital services to the community. We wouldn't be the thriving community hub that we are today without everyone who has supported us throughout the years. So, thank you for the past 25 years, and here's to the next 25 and the future of Red Gables. More information about Red Gables and what they offer can be found on their website. Working from home has caused many people to become frustrated with their work situation with many having very few face-to-face -face interactions with colleagues since the pandemic started. According to national research published by the leading Berries Nedmonds based brewer Green King, nearly two-thirds, that's 65%, of 18 to 24-year-olds, referred to as Gen Z, have only met their work colleagues in person once since starting working in the pandemic. The virus has forced many people into working from home. This is either due to them not feeling safe to go into the office or companies choosing to have staff work remotely. Unfortunately, this leads to many workers not having social contact with their colleagues. Despite the inevitable uncertainties of returning to the office, 85% of British office workers say they would rather work in an office at the moment to spend more time with their colleagues. More than 50% believe it is important to socialise and bond with work colleagues at a local pub or restaurant, but due to the pandemic and work-from-home guidelines, they haven't had the chance to do so yet. Paul Mitchell, Careers Advisor at Futures for You in Suffolk and Norfolk, said... I'm currently working from home since March 2020. I have had three face-to-face -face team meetings with my colleagues in total. I do miss the face-to-face -face contact. It was August last year when we had our first face-to-face -face team meeting. I didn't realise how much I actually miss my colleagues until you start talking to them and seeing them again, and I realised just how good I felt talking to them. There is a difference between talking to somebody in front of you compared to talking to someone on the telephone. You can't read a person's body language on the phone. There are limitations to how well you can connect to somebody over the telephone. As an individual, I feel frustrated working from home and not having that social contact with customers and colleagues alike. The boss of a business support organisation has appealed for the public to give staff a chance. Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of Berry St Edmunds Business Improvement District, says he has heard increasing reports of customers giving staff at town centre businesses a tough time. In a letter to the Berry Free Press, he said, The past two years have been extremely challenging for businesses, nationwide and in Berry St Edmunds. Having got through this, 
our businesses are having to deal with staff shortages and short-term self-isolation, knowing that on the horizon, VAT and business rates will increase, as will utility bills, transportation costs, the costs of goods, and that's without any mention of Brexit. Our businesses have done so well to stay trading, and this is not in any small part due to the great support they receive from the local community. Unfortunately, I am starting to hear of incidents where customers are not being as understanding or tolerant of the impact of all of these issues as they might. Retention and recruiting of staff is of paramount importance, but when they are having to deal with intolerant and angry customers, I can't blame them for wondering whether they want to remain in the retail or hospitality sectors. Likewise, there is no way all of these costs can be absorbed by local independent businesses and some will have to be passed on to customers. At this difficult time, I would ask that we all recognise the difficulties our businesses are facing and be understanding and tolerant. Managers of one of Suffolk's most loved museums have defended their decision to change its name after residents claim the switch may lead to a loss of local heritage. The Museum of East Anglian Life in Stowmarket is to change its name to the Food Museum. However, the museum says it was clear people were confused by the current name and the change would make the museum more appealing to bring more people in. Concerned resident and creator of the Save the Museum of East Anglian Life petition, Matthew Atwood, said, Changing the name and ethos of the museum would mean the loss of the only institution established to celebrate and preserve East Anglian heritage, heritage and history. It's a lot more than just a name. The charitable objects of the museum refer to all the varied aspects of East Anglian life, but under these plans, East Anglia will only have a tangible relationship to the main interest of food. I am deeply concerned that this means the museum will stop collecting our material heritage and may even disperse existing collections. I fail to see how a generic theme like food will attract visitors. The museum, though, says there will not be a loss of local heritage and that the move will help to share local heritage with a wider audience. A spokesperson said, This started in 2018 when we did a big consultation with our staff, our volunteers and trustees around the future of the museum and where it was going in the next 10 years. What came out of it was that a lot of our buildings and collections really relate to food. So we started to do some more consultation work. We did some surveys in Colchester, Norwich and Stowmarket, as well as a few other key areas of East Anglia. What came out of those conversations was that people weren't really sure what was in the Museum of East Anglian Life. So that triggered us into thinking that we needed an easier to understand name for the museum. The museum says changing the name and focus of the venue would to be able to tell other really interesting stories around the topic of food that could bring more people in the museum and the area. A revised Retrospective planning application has been submitted for town centre flats built alongside a pub after changes were made to the design without permission. The flats on Angel Hill in Bury St Edmunds were built as part of the rebuild of the Cycle King store, which burnt down in September 2017, causing more than £1.6 million of damage. Planning permission was granted by West Suffolk Council in February 2019 for a new retail unit along with four first and second floor flats above. Permission was only granted on condition that the windows in the bedrooms of the flats were fixed shut with acoustic vents. This was to ensure noise levels coming from the One Bull pub next door, particularly late at night, did not disturb residents or lead to complaints which could potentially force the pub to restrict its operations. The finished and now occupied development however, features openable bedroom windows. An external door leading to a flat section of roofing on the first floor and also overlooking a private roof garden at the back of the Grade 2 listed pub has also been built without planning permission. On March the 2nd, West Suffolk Council Development Control Committee will consider a full, 
revised and retrospective planning application. The application contains amended details for the windows to remain permanently shut with mechanical ventilation grills. It also applies for the external door to remain in place on condition it is used for building maintenance only. The application has been recommended for approval by planning officers on the basis it meets conditions for the windows within three months and the use of the door, which it considers on reflection is reasonable for access, is restricted. The application has met with opposition from Ward Councillor Joe Rayner and the One Bull. Councillor Rayner said there is evidence that the roof was used during recent snowfall when residents were having snowball fights on the roof. To have built the door after it was not approved and not appealed, I believe was not an oversight but an attempt to flout planning process and should not be rewarded with a retrospective planning application. The original application should be enforced. Planners on behalf of the Wumble have objected on the grounds that the noise report in the application is inadequate and appropriate noise mitigation is needed. A 31-year-old man has been arrested and charged in connection with drug offences in Haverhill. Hamza Delhi of Mayville Road, London, was arrested at a property in Chingford on February 24th on suspicion of being concerned in supplying Class A drugs. The arrested was part of a joint operation between Suffolk Constabulary and the Metropolitan Police and he was taken to Barry St Edmunds Police Investigation Centre for questioning. During a search of the property, a wrap of what is believed to be Class A drugs was located along with a quantity of cash, believed to be in the region of £1,000. Delhi was charged with two counts of being concerned in supplying Class A drugs and one count of possession of Class A drugs. A spokesman for Suffolk Police said, If you suspect drug dealing is taking place in your area or see anything suspicious or out of place, please tell us. You don't have to be certain, just concerned. Call police on 101 or alternatively you can contact the independent charity Crime Stoppers to report anonymously. A Thetford bookshop has been recognised by the Nation Book Tokens Rewards Programme. Not Just Books in Riverside Walk, which opened in October 2020, was named Caboodle's Bookshop of the Month. Shop owner Jane James said it was great to get the accolade as they use the Caboodle website regularly to keep their growing band of customers up to date with things such as the site's book clubs. She said, We really love Caboodle as it is easy to share and update our events on its calendar online. We also really appreciate the reach it has given us with book lovers and has helped us through these challenging times. It is also nice to hear that our customers appreciate all the articles and competitions that it offers as well. Controversial plans for a massive solar farm which would surround several villages are seriously flawed, a council has ruled. Suffolk County Council published its concerns last Friday over proposals for the 2,792-acre Sunica Solar Farm project in West Suffolk and East Cambridgeshire. Cabinet papers say it is impossible for the government to fully evaluate the significance and degree of the impact of the site because several key assessments are inadequate. The solar farm would be built over four main sites, Sunica East A to the north of Freckenham, and to the southeast of Islam, and Sunica East B to the east of Freckenham, south of Worlington and north of Red Lodge. The plans are being examined by the Planning Inspectorate, who will make a recommendation to the Secretary of State for a final decision. The Council's Cabinet papers, papers will be discussed on March 1st. Councillor Richard Rout Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Finance and Environment at Suffolk County Council, said, Unfortunately, we cannot support this solar farm because the size of the development hasn't been justified and the fact that the planning application is seriously flawed. It fails to assess the full range of harm to the landscape and surrounding area. Sonica Limited said the plans meet an urgent national need for new sources of renewable energy generation. And now to our letters section. 
Last week's article in the Berry Free Press, which outlined plans for a third cinema in the now empty Debenhams building, has provoked many letters, mostly against the proposal. A selection follows. Jenny Francis says, The news that the Debenhams building might be used for an everyman cinema came as a great surprise. We have two cinemas already. They already provide for a wide range of clientele, rather than building a very expensive hub out of town for the relocation of the library and the police station, the Debenhams building would be a much better solution. The centre of Bury Nepens should not lose a library that is a key part of many people's lives and is free for people to use. It should not be a bus ride, a long walk or a car journey away. On the same topic of a proposed third cinema for Bury, Tony Mildenhall wrote... Having read your article on the proposed development of Debenhams into a third cinema, I had to check the date. I thought it was the 1st of April. What a bonkers idea. Why not develop a go-kart track or ice rink in the site? Or let's have a bus service that runs after 6 o'clock to encourage people into town in safety. We already have 10 screens in the town. Just pointless to add more. We're a town, not a city. And... Brian Davies writes, Why on earth would Bury need yet another cinema when we already have a modern multiplex and an all-star cinema catering for a more nostalgic outing? And while on the subject of making use of the new vacant ex-Debenhams building, the last thing we need is somewhere else to eat. Andrew Gilmore's suggestion to divide the floor space into small start-up businesses sounds good. And I would also like to see some of the space devoted to antiques and bric-a-brac on the lines of Risby Barnes, which in some way would make up for the loss of the Emporium in the Horseshoe area. Endless possibilities and great potential waiting to be kick-started here. On a different note, Susan Page of Stowmarket writes, Sir, a few years ago a new gas main was laid along Coombs Lane. The culverts under the lane were dug up and the gas main laid across them and then backfilled with concrete. The Highways Authority was informed at the time. The lane now floods on a regular basis and the Highways Authority have tried to flush the culverts with water several times and dug the ditch alongside the lane. This is obviously not going to clear the culverts. The only culvert along the lane which drains now is the one outside our property where I insisted the gas main was laid under the culvert, having to argue for a long time with the gas main team. I feel that the company which laid the main should be responsible for clearing the culverts, and the only way to stop the flooding is to dig up the culverts and reinstate them. Writing in the East Anglian Daily Times, Sally Brown asks, Is it time to bring back the carrier pigeon? Sir, I live in Bromswell, and our mailman of 30 years, Terry who has been a friend to everyone, has been given a new route and there was no replacement prior to Terry leaving. Bromeswell residents no longer receive mail and haven't done so for a week. We have been offered options instead. Option A, drive daily to the main post office, pay for parking if you can find an empty space, which is doubtful, produce a wad of identity papers to prove you're not a crook, and yay, you've got your mail. Make sure to carry enough change for parking. Option B. Hire a carpenter to build a dovecot. Chuck in some wheat and your post could be delivered by carrier pigeon. Oops, I think not. I believe they are extinct, having all been shot. Being a positive person, I can smile. I now have an excuse for failing to pay my taxes on time. All the information I require arrives by airmail from the USA. Our next letter is very pertinent given the situation in Ukraine. Catherine Berry from Felixstowe writes, Sir, I'm writing to tell other local people about cruel new laws that our local MPs should be fighting in Parliament. The Anti-Refugee, Nationality and Borders Bill breaches the UN Convention on Refugees. Rules were put in place after the Holocaust to protect all of us if we flee torture, war or persecution. Refugees could be separated from their families and even locked up. No one should be punished for trying to find safety. The bill is being discussed in the House of Lords right now and then it will go back to MPs. 
I want to call on our local MPs to do the right thing and vote for the amendment to remove Clause 11 from this bill. Clause 11 would punish refugees and torture survivors for trying to find safety and prevent people from rebuilding their lives. And following on from our previous letter, Martin Clark of Walsham the Willows asks for a minute silence, please. Sir, it would be a great gesture if all Premier League football clubs held a minute silence for Ukraine and teams played in yellow and blue and gave all the fans yellow and blue flags, though Chelsea may not agree. Still on the subject of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Colin Rossini of Dovercourt asks, Sir, I can only speak for me, but I'm horrified at the crimes against humanity by the Russian bear, clawing out territory for itself and putting the innocent people of Ukraine to the sword, whilst NATO, armed to the teeth, stands witness to the carnage. Can one imagine leaders of the calibre of Churchill and Roosevelt being dummies on the border? Just what is the point of NATO when it is stuck in an armchair because of paperwork? Pathetic. Ukraine should have been given fast-track NATO membership against a Putin on the prowl and given the opportunity to consolidate its forces before inviting a Hitler in, bully, to reconsider his options. Decent people waiting to do good but caught in the moral maze of club membership doesn't cut it for me. Erupting with sanctions just fills the head with outrage. Boris, Biden and the like have talked a good talk, but in the end they just sounded like people running registered charities i.e. a monologue echo. I've visited Russia. Suffice to say, Russia doesn't pause breath, meaning Putin is what he has always been, a KGB man. And wow, Russia kicked out of the Eurovision Song Contest. The next two letters refer to Stowmarket's Museum of East Anglian Life. Charles Freeman writes questions for Food Museum. Sir, in 1971, in between jobs... I spent some weeks at the Museum of East Anglian Life helping the then director, Norman Smedley, arrange exhibits. It is a fine collection, but it is not clear how it will relate to a museum of food. Is this to be a national museum so that Cornish pasties and cheddar cheese will be given equal place with Suffolk beers? Perhaps it will. An international showcasing of how British tastes have changed over the past 30 years. So having an even broader perspective. If this is the case, who will finance the new exhibits needed? The large food companies in search of publicity? And where do, they where do the original exhibits fit? Will they still be on display or stored away somewhere? There seems to be some emphasis on traditional skills, bread making for instance, but why can this not be reflected in the new title? There is a rich tradition of agricultural production in East Anglia and, with such resources in the present collection, it would be helpful for any title to acknowledge this local heritage as the present one does. And Jill Ling from One House says, Sir, I agree that discussion is needed on the future of the Museum of East Anglian Life. I am a native of East Anglia and I believe that our heritage is worth preserving for future generations there is more to our past than food alone. Barry Peters, editor of the Berry Free Press, advocates that we should be kind to traders across all sectors. Hospitality, retail, retail you name the area of business and chances are that times are tougher than they have been for years. Yes, Omicron is on the retreat and shoppers and buyers are moving back to our high streets. But what they find is a high street under assault. Not only is our home cost of living going up in terms of heating and other utility costs, but the cost of high street goods is going up. Then there's the rising cost of getting supplies from A to B, coupled with the very real issues of recruiting and retaining staff in the current climate. One business leader has come out this week and appealed for understanding, not confrontation. He has asked for backers for traders, whatever line of work they are in. And that message should be echoed across the whole district. Very often, the cost of delivery, raw material or other factors dictates the ticket price we see on an item, and aiming vitriol at a local level isn't the most productive way forward. Everyone is finding it tough, 
but this is a time when a little understanding really will go a long way. Kay Apps from St John Street in Berries Nedmans says, A fair deal or a damp squib again. Are we going to have the Christmas fair restored this year? Last year's special events had all the excitement of a damp the excitement of a damp Emily Thunton writes an opinion piece explaining her frustration over a driver parked in a blue badge disabled space. She has lived with multiple sclerosis, MS, for the last 12 years. I want to blame it on the stress of getting three kids dressed, breakfasted and out of the door in time for school that morning, or the numbers on my bathroom scales, or the fact that my socks were feeling a little tight that day. I want to blame it on the weather, or the state of the inside of my car, only one day after I cleaned it, or the worry that my beloved neighbours may be cancelled. I want to blame it on anything other than what it probably was, a sign that I am finally becoming embittered by my disability. You see, I don't do rages, at least not publicly. I don't like confrontation. I don't like arguments. I don't like unnecessary negativity. And yet, here I was one morning last week, muttering angry abuse at a lady who I didn't know and who looked as though she had never done anything in her life before to warrant being shouted at. And this is where the problem lies. Nobody ever thinks that they are doing anything wrong when they casually rock up to a disabled parking space because it's empty and out of the way, and nobody actually needs these spaces, do they? I've come to discover that a lot of people don't see the wheelchair symbol when they see a blue badge space. They simply see a space that's free for them to use. Or they see a nice spacious space in which to manoeuvre their precious car, always living in fear of it getting scratched, should it be squeezed into a regular space. Pre-disability, I would never have dreamt of parking in a disabled space, or a parent and child space, or any space that is specifically reserved for someone who needs it. And yet every day I come across some nincompoop doing just this. And most of the time, they don't even look like nincompoops. They look like perfectly nice, normal people who would be shocked to learn that they've caused any upset or inconvenience. Perhaps this is why I am usually very good at remaining polite and calm when I ask them if they wouldn't mind moving. And bar one abusive man, who was only going to be two minutes, they have always moved without a fuss which leads me to believe that they do know they are doing something wrong. So, when I arrived at work to find a colleague who I was yet to meet, parked in the disabled space with her boyfriend, who was clearly just dropping her off, there was no sign of a blue badge or anything to suggest that they had parked legitimately, I thought I might wait a moment for them to move. But they didn't. They just sat there canoodling. I found the only remaining space far from the building and with barely any room to wriggle my crutches out of, let alone my wheelchair if I had needed it that day, and I staggered over to the building. Just as I was passing the illicitly parked car, the woman got out, and out of nowhere I found myself sarcastically saying, Nice blue badge! The anger in my voice took both her and me by surprise. Looking at me with innocent confusion, the woman said, I'm sorry, to which I angrily replied, you're parked in a disabled bay. Clearly unaware that she had done anything wrong, she simply said, Well, he'll be moving in a minute. It's too late now, I replied, as I hobbled into work, feeling utterly shocked at myself. I know that I could have handled that better. Flip, I know that I should have handled that better. What had become of me? I spent the whole day analysing my actions, trying to justify my anger, but at the same time condemning it. Who was in the wrong? Her? Me? Both of us? Neither of us? Had I really turned into one of those old men I've encountered who become obsessively territorial over parking spaces and bark at unwitting strangers just because they've built up too much frustration over the years and can no longer hold it in? Is my anger a result of years of suppressed stress at the world and at the disability that exploded into my perfectly happy life causing frustration and disappointment at every turn. When you are faced with continual challenges in a life that needs constant justifying, the one small, ignorant action of stopping a person with a disability 
from accessing a disabled space becomes a huge deal. And when it happens on an almost daily basis, it is very difficult to remain cool. The poor lady on the receiving end of my wrath was simply the ninny who broke the camel's back. In our next feature article, we look at the work of a recently retired flying doctor. When Pam Crispin became East Anglia's first female flying doctor, she soon found getting to a casualty could sometimes be almost as dramatic as the emergency itself. On her second mission with the region's air ambulance, the helicopter touched down on a reed bed and immediately began to sink. We had to jump out fast and it had to take off again sharpish, says Pam, who has just retired as a deputy medical director of the East Anglian Air Ambulance, known as EAAA. There are occasional scary moments, but the helicopter is a very safe form of travel. It's more hazardous driving to work. Another time, we landed on a towpath really close to the water, and getting out was quite tricky. Then, we were on the wrong side of the river, so we had to get a boat, which then sprung a leak and started to sink. We've also had to do an emergency landing in a field because of a really bad thunderstorm. Her career with the EAAA has been some heart-in-mouth moments, trauma, joy and tragedy. Some of the best times have been reunions with patients who owe her their lives. There have also been a lot of very sad jobs, where you turn up and can't do anything at all, she said. My first mission was to a man who had died of carbon monoxide poisoning. He'd killed himself. Pam began volunteering for the service in 2007, proving that a small, middle-aged woman in glasses, her words, could do the job as well as any man. She carried on flying life-saving missions until 2021, fitting in her shifts with a distinguished career that included being a consultant and, for a time, medical director at West Suffolk Hospital. But it took her a while to realise she was a trailblazer. To be honest, it didn't even cross my mind for years that I was their first female doctor, she said. They already had a female paramedic. Now it's almost half and half. I got into it because I was a volunteer with Suffolk Accident Rescue Service, which is a wonderful service. I was its chairman for some time. Pam said her final goodbye at the end of January. As a parting gift, her colleagues organised a treasure hunt where... At every stop, she found people she had worked with or patients whose lives she had saved. They included Emma Cavana and her daughter, Willow, who is now three. Pam had arrived at their home to find a life-or-death situation with every second was critical. Emma had suffered a placental corruption, a desperately serious problem that, without Pam's help, could have killed her and her unborn baby. Also waiting to meet her were nine-year-old Tilly and her mum, Haley. Pam saved Tilly's life when she had a severe asthma attack four years ago. It was an emotional day. By the time we got back, I could barely speak, she said. She also recalls a young man who had accidentally taken, on, taken an opiate overdose. He'd had terrible pain and taken quite a lot, she recalls. We arrived soon after he had stopped breathing. He was blue and his heart wasn't beating. We were not expecting that. We got ourselves organised and managed to work out what had happened and were able to reverse the opiates. He was awake when we got into the ambulance and he made a really good recovery. You only need the occasional thing like that to make you feel it's all worthwhile. When Pam started with the EAAA, a second helicopter, Cambridge-based Anglia II, had just joined Anglia 1, which flew from Norwich Airport. There was a crew room, a charity office and a storeroom, which doubled up as a changing room, she recalls. The blokes were quite decent about not coming in while I was getting changed. It was all very ad hoc in the beginning, squeezing stuff in around the day job, but using volunteers wasn't really the best way of supporting people coming in who required structure, training and supervision. The life-saving charity can now call on around 60 doctors and 12 critical care paradigmics, plus a backup pool, all of whom get paid. 
covering four shifts a day and also flying at night. It's a £15 million a year operation, said Pam. A lot has changed in the last 14 years. The service is now highly professional and the care we can deliver pre-hospital is simply amazing. The EAAA has moved on from being a rapid way of taking people to hospital to bringing the hospital to them. We have wonderful critical care paramedics who have been around for a long time and are so good at working in that hazardous environment. Doctors have their skills and it's great. It's a great combination. Camille Berriman gives her personal view on paying cash into a bank. Before Christmas, Clara, my daughter, put Rainbow High House on her list for Father Christmas. Dave and I knew we would need to take out a second mortgage to buy the house, so we warned Clara that Santa would not be able to fit the house on his sleigh and urged her to start saving to buy it herself. Clara has saved her Christmas money, all her pocket money from Granny and Grandad, and all her reward chart money. Slowly, her China piggy bank has become heavier. During a recent progress count, we worked out Clara might have enough to buy the Rainbow High House by Easter. If you don't know what a Rainbow High House is, think of a normal doll's house but on steroids. For my part, I've been checking a well-known online retailer regularly to see if the house had dropped in price. Then, on Thursday, the house went on a lightning deal. The deal was so good that even though Clara was still £18 short, I knew it was now or never. We needed to get it ordered. So I collated Clara's savings and went on a paying-in mission. I headed to HSBC, which handles the in-person banking of First Direct customers like us. None of the banking machines accepted coins and notes, so I started the process with the coin machine. It was painfully slow. It also had a lot of trouble counting. But after four attempts, it finally managed to count 34 pound coins. Next, I moved to the notes machine and popped in my card. It spat it back out, saying, This machine does not accept your card. So I tried the next machine along. Same problem. A staff member caught my eye as I set off to walk to the counter. We closed the counter in November, he said. Can I help? Then he looked at my card and drew in his breath. Oh no, our machines won't accept that card. It's too new. They only accept the old ones. What you can do is go to the post office and pay it in there. I pointed out that the Cornhill post office closes every day between 1.30pm and 2.30pm, my window of time in the town centre. Mr HSBC asked if I had another account with a different bank. In that case, you can go to NatWest, pay the money there and transfer it over, he said. Essentially, the advice was to do my banking elsewhere. As a former teller at NatWest, I mourn the days of bustling counters in our banking halls. Yes, so much can be done online now, but is there any mechanical replacement for a friendly face and the ability to count £34 coins in a few seconds? Meanwhile, we've been teaching Clara about money, different coins and the importance of saving. I always assumed she would one day manage her own bank account, just as I did when NatWest offered China piggies to its young account holders as saving incentives. I still have the set. Clara will still have her own account, but at a bank or building society where she can pay in her cash with a human. As part of his series on the Abbey of St Edmunds, local historian Martin Taylor writes about the significance of the John Appleby Rose Garden. During the time of the Abbey, this particular site was known as the Great Hall, over the cellar, but during World War II it was a piggery, and that is where this narrative really starts. John Tate Appleby, an only child, born on June 10, 1907, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, would eventually attend Harvard and the Sorbonne, studying the classics, Greek and Latin. As an American serviceman sent over to England in 1945 to teach celestial navigation to American flyers, he was not required, as they were then flying by day. He so enjoyed his sojourn travelling around the English countryside, appreciating its history and heritage, 
that in 1948 he published a book called A Suffolk Summer, based on his time here. Still in print today, its royalties were left by him to help create and maintain this wonderful garden. Returning to the USA, he never came back to England, dying in 1974 at his home in Washington, D.C. Today, the garden is a place of tranquility and contemplation, with memorials to various conflicts a fitting place for them. Perhaps the one that stands out the most is that to the 94th Bombardment Group, stationed at RAF Beres Nedman's Ruffham. A total of 324 combat missions were flown from here by B-17 Flying Fortresses, the last mission on April 21, 1945. The commander of the base in 1944 was Brigadier General Frederick Walker Castle, not only one of the youngest generals in the USA Air Force, but a hands-on leader. On the fateful day of December 24, 1944, he flew his B-17, one of the 2,000 bombers, to attack Nazi Germany, but over Belgium, his fully bombadent plane was hit by enemy fire. Realising his predicament being over a friendly urban environment, he got his crew out, five of the nine surviving. However, Castle was killed in the ensuing inferno, but the town below was left unscathed. For this act of heroism, he received his country's highest honour, the Congressional Medal of Honour. He was the highest-ranking American serviceman killed in Northern Theatre of War in World War II and is buried in Henri Chapelle American Cemetery, Belgium. A bench made from B-19 aluminium, aluminium donated by the USA Air Force has an Edmund Rose planted just behind it. I've been asked to advertise the Deafblind UK group which meets on the second Thursday of every month from 12 noon to 2pm at Bury Deaf Association, 28 Northgate Street, Bury St Edmunds. They are really keen to welcome some new members. The membership process is completely free for the first few months. New members get the chance to trial the group and see how they feel. Afterwards, if they would like to continue attending, each member pays £5 and £1 for a raffle ticket if they would like to win a raffle prize. Included in the cost is cups of tea and coffee and biscuits. On special occasions such as birthdays there will be cake too. The money is put towards entertainment the group would like. This year the group has chosen to do a variety of activities including bingo and raffle on Thursday the 10th of March, which is next week. Then there are Easter crafts with crafty foxes, carpet bowls, fish and chips, Christmas crafts with crafty foxes and a Christmas meal. If you would like any more information, please ring Kirsty Last on 07402-787-720. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Evansby News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Telephone numbers mentioned in this edition are 07402 787 720. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Sheila, Roger, Nick and Jill, it's goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided 
under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.